Hi, I'm Chelsea, the Christian Nutritionist. Welcome to the Christian Health Club podcast. We are here to fire you up in spirit, mind, and body so that you can get out into the world and be everything God created you to be. Welcome to the club. Here we go. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to the club. How are you today? We are going to do the podcast that I had planned to do a few weeks ago, you know, around my birthday, my birthday podcast, before I got sidelined by all the number drama. Remember, I told you that I wanted to talk about the five health books that were game changers for me when it came to my health, to my perspective on um, on health and nutrition and so that's what we're going to do today now I am such an avid reader I love to read it is one of my favorite things to do I would just if I could sit around all day and read books I would be happy as a clam and so picking you know picking favorites is really hard especially when I'm, I've just got a wall of books highlighted dog-eared especially you know all these health books but you know I really did want to focus on uh, what led me here on my nutrition and health journey. And so I wanted to share these books, share my biggest takeaways, um, how, what they changed for me, and just kind of drop some knowledge bombs from them with you. What's interesting is that four of these books are over 10 years old, at least some of them are more, and yet they are still relevant today. And I think that speaks volumes about their quality and the information that's in there. And so I hope that um, it either inspires you to read the books yourselves, or you know, if you're not a reader, that's okay, too. This is like your cliff notes, and you're going to learn a lot. So I'm so glad that you're here with me to go through them. And there's a lot. So let's get started. Okay, number one, numero uno, nourishing traditions. So this one was recommended to me by my sister in love um, in the early 2000s. This is way, way back. And it's the first book that challenged the way that I had been taught or, you know, what was out there about nutrition. In fact, on the cover of the book, it says it challenges politically correct nutrition, meaning that it goes against everything that you've heard, especially at that time. At that time, fats were very vilified. You know, everything was low fat and don't eat saturated fat. It's bad for your heart. Eat margarine, have canola oil, all that kind of thing. And this book was very against the grain. It was, it was saying the complete opposite. And, and it was a real eye opener for me. The book is actually a cookbook. But the introduction is like a mini health and nutrition course, which is funny because this was actually required reading for my nutritional therapy practitioner training that I would be taking, um, you know, 10, 11 years later. So interesting. But when I read it the first time around, it was the first time that I'd heard that there was very little evidence, actual evidence that says a diet low in cholesterol and saturated fat actually reduces heart disease, death from heart disease, or increases lifespan. So, you know, that's complete opposite from uh, still, honestly, today, we still hear this uh, quite a bit. It was the first time I'd heard of stearic acid, which is the main component in beef fat, um, and that it can actually help lower cholesterol. Okay, I mean, we just hear again, like, don't eat, you know, beef is so bad for your heart, and it will raise your cholesterol and give you heart disease. And this is saying that one of the main fats in beef is really healthy for you. In fact, I've been hearing a lot about stearic acid lately um, and how it can possibly shrink fat cells. Yeah, girl, we'll talk about that another day. Okay. <laughs> That's pretty exciting. It's kind of, it's kind of new on the radar. So I'm going to listen to more and read more about that. And then we'll come back another day and address it. But, um, you know, that I hadn't heard, you know, about beef. 
Um, and then it was saying that margarine can actually provoke high levels of cholesterol. So again, not what was being pushed in the mainstream. Nourishing Traditions was the first time I heard to eat real butter because it's one of the best sources of fat soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K. And it also said that these vitamins occur in larger amounts when the butter comes from cattle eating green grass. Imagine that. So why Kerrygold got so popular is because um, it is real butter that comes from cattle who feed on the green Irish grass. So there you go. It was the first time I'd heard of bone broth, fermented foods, nut butters, uh, eating raw beef, sprouting grains, soaking nuts, cod liver oil, kombucha. This is also the book that inspired me to try raw milk, which my family and I uh, were able to get for several years and, and we did drink it. This book is literally a throwback to the more traditional ways that our ancestors would have prepared foods. Now, you know, a lot of this is mainstream now, kombucha and alternative nut butters and homemade yogurt and bone broth. But almost 20 years ago, this was pretty out there. In fact, I didn't make many of the recipes at that time, but I loved reading them. And I love the tidbits of extra learning that they include on every single page. There's little experts, uh, excerpts from books and medical journals, and there's some Bible verses sprinkled in there. There's uh, some specific education on certain minerals and vitamins. It is just an amazing resource of information in and of itself, um, which is why it was part of the curriculum for NTA. So what was interesting is, you know, by the time I got around to it, the second time to read it, to have to sit down and really read through it uh, for my nutritional therapy training, I was at a place where I was really kind of eating paleo. That was kind of what was, you know, paleo was... Well, it was probably, paleo was early popular. This was around 2011 or 12, I guess, is when I was went through nutritional therapy training. And they are very much in favor of including properly prepared nutrient-dense foods as part of a healthy, stable diet. And that includes things like grains and legumes, which a lot of people, um, you know, avoid or just you know, kind of poo poo, like that's, they're so terrible for you. And, you know, I honestly, I don't eat a lot of those grains or legumes myself. But rereading this and going through the nutritional ther therapy training, um, one thing, a major concept that I learned was bio individuality. And that means that there's no one exact right diet for everyone. And so it would be a disservice for me to demonize all grains or to blanketly recommend like a paleo diet or a keto diet or for somebody to go, you know, completely grain free to every single one of my clients. Even though I will say that there are many, many people whose guts cannot handle these grains and legumes, some can, and it can be a part of a healthy diet when properly prepared. And so for me, it, uh, it kind of helped lift that stigma, you know, at a time when I was eating paleo and back then with paleo, like no rice or anything like that. It was, you know, really kind of strict paleo. Now it's a little bit more lenient. You can have rice and some things like that, but, um, but it kind of helped lift that stigma that, you know, not everybody has to be grain free. And so um, that's why I include, it's a big reason I include grains and legumes in Feast to Fast as an option. Now, some people eat them and some people don't, but that has to be based on an individual person's choice and needs. And when they are properly prepared through soaking and sprouting, um, many more people can digest them. That, that's really one of the major points of this book, and it teaches you how to do that. And I talk about this in a podcast called The Insider Secrets to Eating Grains and Legumes. And that really, you know, a lot of that information and that foundation comes from this book. So alongside using the Lord as my compass for eating, this is one of those books that made, you know, a big difference and influence on me as far as a healthy approach to macronutrients and that we don't have to cut out entire categories of macros like fats, you know, like fats, uh, we can have fats, fats are good, or certain carbohydrates to have a healthy diet, you know, um, when we make good choices within each of those macronutrient categories, and we prepare the food properly, then um, it can be a part of a healthy diet. So that's, that's the first one that came along in my journey. 
the next one um, is taking charge of your fertility. I've mentioned that here before, that that was one I really leaned on heavily. It teaches the fertility awareness method, the FAM, um, as a means for both conceiving, for conception, and for um, contraception. Um, so it is a scientifically validated, natural, non-invasive method of effective birth control, pregnancy achievement, and health awareness. And what it teaches is how to um, identify the fertile time through observing your waking temperature, your cervical fluid, and you can also look for signs of cervical position. So, you know, we know that women are actually only fertile a few days per cycle, you know, around ovulation when the egg is released. And the thing is, that's not going to always be on day 14, like is so entrenched in our heads, you know, we're like, we're taught cycles are about 28 days and day 14 is baby maker day. And at the time I was trying to conceive, my cycles were like 36 days long, you know, and it was frustrating because it felt like it took forever for another chance for baby making time to come around. And there wasn't a lot of conversation around the specifics of my, my period with my OBGYN, you know, and it's just like, once I hadn't gotten pregnant after almost a year, it was like, well, I guess we need to send you to the the clinic in San Antonio and see a specialist, you know? And so once I got to the specialist, there were no answers. It was just like, okay, let's dive into treatment here. And, you know, nobody ever educated me about how to really know when I'm ovulating, you know, it's not necessarily going to be smack dab in the middle of your cycle. <laughs> and, you know, um, and so I just was like, well, you know, that's what the doctors are saying to do though. So, I mean, I was all in because I didn't know otherwise. I didn't, you know, I just was going off what the doctor said and they said, I have a, a fertility problem and that's what I have, you know, but my husband was like, uh, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with me. And he was not at all down with the direction it was taking and what they were wanting to do. And he pretty much refused to move forward with what the doctors were suggesting. That was a very hard time. Um, and I didn't like him very much, which is not helpful when you're trying to make a baby. <laughs> so, um, I think I've shared this, that he, you know, he like literally compared our situation to the process of his cattle. He's like, sometimes it just doesn't take, you know, it just can take a while, you know, looking out in the pasture and we're driving around and he's talking about how, you know, this cow and got pregnant and the, uh, you know, I was like, please, uh-uh, I cannot even with that right now. And so, um, you know, we were at a real standstill and I was devastated, you know, I didn't grow up wanting to be anything real specific in my life, like a doctor or a lawyer, a teacher, an astronaut, or, you know, anything like that. But I always knew I wanted to be a mother. That is the thing that I knew I wanted to be. And so out of sheer desperation, I just started researching, um, you know, what I could do. I found my, my nature doctor, as I like to call him, my naturopath, and uh, made an appointment. And interestingly, Brian was totally willing to go with me. Uh, which was a nice surprise and um, you know it was very pricey but you know he was okay so we went and um, Dr. Hines spent a lot of time with us he looked at my blood under a microscope he let us look I thought that was so fascinating I mean I had no, no doctor ever do that with me and explain things to me like that he asked me a lot of questions about my digestion and my poop and I was like well what's poop got to do with making a baby <laughs> so ironic yeah God is so funny. Um, my education was starting right there at that point. You know, this traje trajectory to what I'm doing today was born from this desperate challenge of not being able to conceive. It's truly beauty from ashes. So Dr. Hines recommended a book. It's not this one, but it's the one we're going to talk about next that has to do with diet you know, recommended I go gluten-free. He gave me a bunch of supplements, most of which were essential fatty acids. And he sent me on my way. And so I had that. And then I'd all, also in my researching had come across uh, this book, Taking Charge of Your Fertility. And so I got home and I just went to town on 
all of it, you know, doing things I'd never thought I'd do, like get all up in my lady garden to determine the state of my cervical fluid. So just in case you're wondering, you're most fertile when your cervical fluid is of an egg white consistency. And how would you know that? You have to get up all in your lady garden. So, I mean, I took my temperature, I charted, I evaluated the consistency of my cervical fluid. I changed my diet. I took the essential fatty acid supplements and six weeks later, I was pregnant. To this day, it blows my mind and serves as the best reminder that when we take care of our body and honor the way it was designed, it knows what to do. And nutritional therapy and fertility awareness should be the first step for everyone who is ready to conceive. I, I think I told y'all well in that uh, podcast when I did with Dr. Heather Rhodes and we were talking about PCOS and hormones and stuff. I mean, honestly, like the last before this and reading this book, I mean, I'm pretty sure the last time I thought about my period besides having it every month or anything you know about my body works and my hormones was like in fourth grade when they literally you know had the class at school and then they give you like a box of pads to take with you in case you start and they give you some pamphlets seriously that was like the last of my education about my body um and you know I I do believe it was a combination of understanding how my body works and changing the environment, the health of my body, because let me, let me tell y'all, your body is so smart. God made it so smart. And when it's inflamed, when it is stressed, when it is not getting proper nutrients, it's like, oh no, this is not the right time to grow a baby. If your body's inflamed and stressed and doesn't, you know, doesn't get the nutrition it needs, what it thinks is that out in the outside world, there's, you know, danger, there's dangerous things happening because you're stressed or there's not enough food. I mean, think back historically when there was truly like these, you know, kind of feast and famine cycles. And so if there was like no food and there's no nutrition coming in, your body's smart. And it's like, oh yeah, this isn't the time to grow up, baby. But we have that today. We can be, um, we can be getting plenty of food, but still be uh, nutritionally starved. And so I think for many people, that is the case and nutritional therapy whether there's a fertility problem or not nutritional therapy should be a go-to if you're even think about getting pregnant i mean people will put more time and energy into their cars and their pets and they're like redecorating their kitchen than they will into their own bodies and when that body is going to grow a whole other person you know, I mean, this is just, we need to check ourselves. So anyway, um, this was just, you know, a real light bulb for me when I realized, oh my gosh, I can change my body with food. You know, like all this time that I couldn't get pregnant, this, these are the issues and I, and I took care of it. So, so rewarding. And, um, you know, I still have this book on my bookshelf, even though, I am done with the babies, <laughs> not making any more babies, but it's a great resource. Um, so anyway, okay, number three, so is the book that Dr. Hines actually recommended to me, and it's called Breaking the Vicious Cycle, and he uh, recommended this to me to address my digestive health, um, and at the time that I read it, it was way over my head and kind of like nourishing traditions was kind of weird and super crunchy town <laughs> to me. Um, but now, but now where I am today and all the knowledge I have, I realize that this book is seriously one of the OGs of gut health. Okay. This book came out in the mid nineties and it's talking about the microbiome and the, you know, making the connection between gut health, bacteria and overall health. It's got recipes for zucchini noodles and cauliflower potatoes and cookies made with nut flowers and dates. Again, stuff that is mainstream now, but in the mid 90s, I mean, and even when I read it in 2005, I mean, it's pretty fringy, right? Um, and like Nourishing Traditions, it's part informative text, part cookbook. And it's a book that is targeted to people with Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, diverticulitis, 
celiac disease, cystic fibrosis, chronic diarrhea, and even autism. And so there's a really cool story behind it um, in that the author, Elaine Gottschall, she had a daughter, and this is like back in the 1950s, she had a daughter with severe ulcerative colitis to the point where her health was deteriorating quickly. Um, she was malnourished. She stopped growing. She had bouts of delirium, and they thought she was going to die. And when they had tried everything, like out of sheer desperation, and once again, when you're desperate, you guys, you really seek truth and answers. But uh, she found this 92-year-old doctor, Dr. Haas, who had had success with similar patients using a certain nutritional approach. He'd written a book on it and that was easily accessible on libraries and yet she had never heard of it and no other mainstream doctors were giving it any credence. Nobody had asked Elaine about her daughter's diet and her primary doctor assured her it had nothing to do with food. It sounds sadly familiar. And yet, Within 10 days of starting this new, this new nutritional therapy regimen, Elaine's daughter's neurological problems diminished. Within a few months, her intestinal symptoms began to improve and she started growing again. And within two years, she was completely symptom-free. So a complete turnaround. And by this time, the doctor, Dr. Haas, had passed away. And Elaine was so worried that unless somebody carried on his legacy, carried on this protocol that it would just die along with him and that you know other people would not have this answer and benefit from this knowledge and this certain way of eating so at the age of 47 she went back and earned a degree in biology nutritional biochemistry and cellular biology opened up a practice and um, treated so many patients helped so many people influenced so many people um, through this book and just helping people personally for the rest of her life um, again, it's just this more beauty from ashes, such a cool story. And so this method of nutritional therapy that is talked about in this book is the specific carbohydrate diet, which is still used today. And what it does is has have people predominantly focus on eating carbs with single sugars. So monosaccharides, we're going to get a little bit sciencey in some of this today, y'all. Um, so focusing on monosaccharide carbohydrates, as opposed to disaccharides, which, um, are carbs with two sugars or polysaccharides, which have, uh, multiple sugars in them like starches. And the premise is that the body can more easily break down single sugar foods like fruit, honey, properly made yogurt and certain vegetables as opposed to foods with these uh, with extra sugar molecules. And for people with compromised guts, these higher sugar carbohydrates are problematic. And this is, you know, this is more common knowledge now that a lot of gut issues um, well are caused by but both are aggravated by carbs and it, that's like this vicious cycle. And so um, it's why there's been such a, a move toward like paleo and keto and carnivore because people that cannot, their guts are so compromised and can't handle carbohydrates when they take a lot of these out as in these, you know, those diets I just mentioned, they start to improve and they feel so much better. And it's because their guts cannot handle these carbohydrates. Okay. Um, and this is, but you know, you reread this book, that came out, you know, in the, it might have, this one might even come out in the 80s. Um, it, it's been out a long time. Um, and, you know, Elaine Gottschall went through this in the 1950s. So this is not new knowledge. And, and in fact, the author shows that this has been studied since the early 1900s. And yet today, still today, even though we've made a lot of strides, medical professionals and the general public are just, they're still not making this connection. It's so interesting how in this book, um, they talk about how in the early 1900s, there was a doctor, um, Dr. Christian Herter, and he was a physician and professor at Columbia University. And he noted that in every case where children were wasting away with diarrhea and you know debilitation, proteins and fats were handled well, but carbohydrates were badly tolerated. And that ingestion of certain carbs almost always caused a relapse of the health condition. Another early 
world-renowned children's specialist, his name was Dr. Samuel Gee, said that if a patient with an intestinal disease, if they could be cured at all, it was going to have to be done by means of diet. He also said that milk was the least suitable food during intestinal problems, and the highly starchy foods like rice, corn, potatoes, and grains were unfit. And he said something so brilliant, which still stands today, and that is this. We must never forget that what the patient takes beyond his power to digest does harm. Let me say it again, because the word takes kind of makes it confusing, but let's say it like this. Don't forget that what a patient eats that he is not able to digest does harm. This is so important for everyone to understand because no matter the food, even if it's a real food, if you can't digest it well, it is harmful to you. And that is why there's no one right diet for every person because depending on the state of the gut, some the gut, some foods are going to work for some people and some people it's not going to work again. You know, it's that bio-individuality. And what the book explains, which was so ahead of its time, is that the inability to digest these um, complex sugar carbohydrates will lead to bacterial imbalances in the gut, which create that vicious cycle of poor health. It says of all the dietary components, carbohydrates have the most major influence over intestinal microbes. That's your gut bacteria. Now y'all have heard me, you know, say time and again, how carbs, you know, carbohydrates are the macronutrient that trip us up the most as far as our cravings and being tempted and overeating but it's also the macronutrient that trips up our gut health the most. And that's why in Feast of Fast, we do take these different levels of carbs step by step so that you can not only get a handle on discerning what you like, but also discerning what works for your body. You know, and again, that's why I don't, I don't hand out meal plans in Feast of Fast. You know, because number one, I don't know if you like rice or, you know, if that's worth it to you, or if your body can even digest it, if it can handle it, you know, um, I'm not going to lay a one blanket food plan for every person, they got to figure out what works for themselves. And so I offer lots of recipe ideas, you know, but then it's up to the individual person going through feast to fast to be discerning and make their choices along the way with what is going to best serve their body and what they really enjoy eating. Okay. What's cool about this book is it also shares, uh, shares success stories from parents of children with autism who saw just complete turnarounds in their children from going on the specific carbohydrate diet. In some instances, becoming verbal, initiating affection. I mean, some really life changing, you know, improvements happened. And it's just, you know, from changing food y'all oh my gosh like just going through all of these books again and just rereading all these I mean these are stories I hear all the time but it's just like ah this I love what I do and and it's just it's so rewarding to get to sit here and share this information with you and just um and just keep reminding you that food does so much uh for how we feel and show up in the world so some things to avoid on the specific carbohydrate diet all cereal grains including corn wheat oats rice rye and millet no potatoes or sweet potatoes that's kind of sad um all milk and milk products high in lactose like store-bought yogurt cream sour cream ice cream um, and cheeses like feta, mozzarella, and ricotta are not recommended on the SCD uh, diet. Now, some cheeses are allowed, but it's these, these kind of higher lactose, these kind of wetter, wetter cheeses that um, can be problematic. Most vegetables and fruits are allowed. Honey and dates are the prefer- preferred source of sugar, so no sucrose, molasses, or maple syrup. And you can Google SCD and get a ton of information. You can get lists. Um, And you'll likely see a reference to this book. This was a pioneering book. um, And you'll probably come across Elaine Gottschall's story. We've learned a lot about the microbiome since this book first came out, but it is still relevant. 
and I'm still blown away by its foresight. And it's wonderful that this information is well, uh, more well-known and accessible now, but it's still disappointing that it's still relatively unaddressed in conventional medicine and that there are still some gastroenterologists that say diet has nothing to do with your gut problems. That's like palm to forehead moment. I just can't even. I think that population is shrinking, but still there's a lot of room for conventional medicine to use nutritional therapy um, and approaches like this. Okay, the next, the next book on my health journey came a bit later, um, and that's Wheat Belly. So I probably read this. Let's see. I think I was between my uh, second and third kids. So what happened was, <laughs> after I, you know, went off gluten with uh, my to conceive for my first child. Then I cut, you know, I kind of dabbled back and forth, I'd, you know, go gluten free, and then it w I would come back to it. And, um, you know, and then my second son was born with eczema. And so, you know, then I was like, Oh, my gosh, you know what I do to this kid. And so I just got really back into all this, I went to my own nutritionist by the time I got around to having Blair. And so wheat belly, was one of the books I read. And this was like the kick your butt to get off gluten uh, type book. I always recommend it to my clients who know they should struggle with it. Um, this I'm like, read Wheat Belly. It is like the fire under your booty to make you get it done. So I would recommend it for that. And so I'm going to go through, I just pulled like a ton of quotes from this book. And in Dr. Davis, he's a cardiologist who wrote this book. I mean, this book is still classic. And and just so brimming with information like I took so many notes to share with you here and then I had to go back and cut half of them out because I just like this would be I could have done the whole podcast on this book um but I'm going to just share he kind of breaks it down into different categories and so the first one I want to share with you is about the changes in the wheat plant and what he says is wheat naturally evolved to only a modest degree over the centuries, but it has changed dramatically in the past 50 years under the influence of agricultural scientists. Wheat strains have been hybridized, crossbred, um, intergressed to make the wheat plant resistant to environmental conditions such as drought or pathogens such as fungi, okay? But most of all, these genetic changes have been induced to incre increase yield per acre. So the average yield on a, a modern North American farm is more than tenfold greater than farms of a century ago. And such enormous strides in yield have required drastic changes in the genetic code of the plant. So, you know, it used to be that wheat was like this long, you know, you think of the amber waves of grain, you know. You know, that's how it used to be. And now wheat is like this 18 inch tall, high production dwarf wheat. Okay. And so he says, you know, a loaf of bread, a biscuit, a pancake of today is different than its counterpart of a thousand years ago, even different from what our grandmothers made. They might look the same, even taste much the same, but there are biochemical differences and small changes in the wheat protein structure can spell the difference between a devastating immune response to wheat protein versus no immune response at all. Okay, so because this wheat, the structure of this, of the wheat protein has changed, that has contributed to so much of this devastating immune response, autoimmune conditions, okay? So that's the changes in the wheat plant. The another major category he addresses is that he goes into the idea of wheat um, as a what he calls a super carbohydrate, and not super as in great, but super as in like carbon steroids. It's just like over the top carby. <laughs> and he explains that we're gonna get a little sciencey again here. He explains that there's a component of wheat. The, what makes it the carbohydrate of the wheat is this com this compound called amylopectin A that makes it a form of highly digestible carbohydrate and makes it converted to blood sugar very, very quickly and efficiently, nearly more than all other carbohydrate foods. 
simple or complex, okay? And so amapolectin is rapidly converted to glucose and absorbed into the bloodstream. And because it most, you know, is efficiently digested, is mainly responsible for wheat's blood sugar increasing effects. When we think of eating wheat and you hear that it spikes your blood sugar, it's because of this amapolectin A. Okay, and Dr. Davis says that, you know, people are usually shocked when he tells them that whole wheat bread can increase blood sugar, does increase blood sugar to a higher level than even sucrose, table sugar. You know, aside from a little extra fiber, eating two slices of whole wheat bread is really not different and often worse than drinking uh, a soda, like a sugary soda or eating a sugary candy bar. Okay, and so what he just really wants people to understand is that wheat products elevate blood sugar virtually more than almost any other carbohydrate. And so that's really important to know. Um, and because wheat car the wheat carbohydrate with this uniquely digestible amapolectin A causes a greater spike in blood sugar, it also triggers a greater insulin release. Okay, and so it's this, this amapolectin A means higher blood sugar, means higher insulin, means higher visceral fat deposition, means wheat belly. All right. So the higher the blood glucose, the higher your blood sugar after you eat, the greater insulin level you have, the more fat you're going to have. Okay, so we go over all of this and, and feast to fast and, you know, the way that the body works with carbs and insulin and sugar and how it's stored and how it goes to fat. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more here in one of the other books that I talk about. But um, the other thing that you have to remember is that, um, you know, the bigger your what he calls your wheat belly, the poorer your response to insulin. So it creates this insulin resistance and requires your body to pump out more and more insulin because your cells are insulin resistant. And so it doesn't register. There's, you know, so you have to pump out more insulin and this is what leads to diabetes. Okay. And so, oh my gosh, if you have diabetes, don't, you better not be touching wheat with a 10 foot pole y'all. And he also points out that, you know, for males that have this big belly, uh, there's going to be more estrogen produced by the fat tissue. So, well, and that's actually, that's true of not just males, but he, what he's getting at is that, um, you know, you're, as a male, when you've got this big fat wheat belly, you're going to produce more estrogen. It's going to throw off your hormones and it's also going to lead to man boobs. Okay. For, you know, women, remember that fat is like its own endocrine organ. And that as women, especially as we move into the postmenopausal years, our fat becomes one of our estrogen makers, our primary sources of estrogen. And so if you've got a lot of fat, you're going to be uh, producing a lot of estrogen. But even if you're overweight as a young person, no matter what your age is, you, um, it's going to produce estrogen. And so you can become estrogen dominant, throw off your, you know, your hormones, all of that. Um, he also says that, you know, the bigger your wheat belly, the more inflammatory responses are triggered, um, like I said, in diabetes and heart disease and cancer and inflammation of joints. So it is not, you know, we're not just talking about, you know, belly issues here, like the belly issues, there's weight, but then it can lead to all of this, you know, this other inflammation. Um, so keep that in mind. Okay. Also, Dr. Davis tells us that wheat is an appetite stimulant. It stimulates appetite. So that's not helpful. You know, if you're already obese and you want to lose weight, but you have, you're keeping wheat in your diet, it is driving you to eat more. It stimulates your appetite. That's so not helpful, <laughs> right? And the other thing he says is that it's an addictive compound. So you've got something that's addictive and stimulating your appetite. That is a recipe for disaster. One of the questions on the nutritional uh, assessment that I give clients is what are, you know, do you, are there any foods that you cannot give up? And one of the ones, you know, the one I hear most commonly is I can't give up pasta, can't give up bread. Like, yeah, because yes, for this reason, it's addictive. It makes you want to eat it. And the more you eat it, the more you want it. 
And so it's hard. It, that's why it's so hard to cut out of the diet. But you just, you know, you got to make that hard break. And then once you do and you kind of get over that, um, that hump, you know, of withdrawal and you get past that, then it's, then you're really, you really are okay. It's fine. And you don't crave it like you used to. But, you know, that little interval there, it can be tough. Um, okay. Notice we haven't even gotten to the gluten part yet. Okay, so we will now, but just know that, like, even if I didn't even talk about gluten, all of that on its own is problematic. So, but, you know, with the gluten, um, the way that he explains is that, that, okay, wheat by weight is mostly carbohydrate as the amaplectin A that we talked about earlier, that super digestible carbohydrate that like just flies through your system and turns the blood sugar really quickly. But it's the protein, the gluten protein is what makes wheat wheat. And so the term gluten encompasses two primary families of proteins, the gliadins and the glutenins. The gliadinin, I'll be, y'all, I get tripped up on these words. The gliadin protein of wheat, it's present in all forms of wheat from spongy wonder bread to the coarsest organic multigrain loaf, okay? All of those. So even if you're like baking this beautiful organic wheat loaf, even that, it's going to have this gliadin protein, which has the unique ability to make your intestine permeable. Translate, that means leaky gut. Okay. Leaky gut is, (laughs) leaky gut is like the foundation of gut problems. When you have a leaky gut, it means that food compounds can leak into your bloodstream. Ones that shouldn't be getting into there should be contained within your gut. But a leaky gut will allow certain compounds out into your bloodstream and then your immune system is like what is this foreign object here and it's like all the sirens and the red lights and the alarms and the whistles and the bells are all going off your immune system's freaking out it wants to protect you and so it's setting off this immune response and this is what can lead to autoimmune conditions okay because the body's immune response um, can start getting tricked into activation and attacks normal organs such as thyroid or joint tissue. Okay, so it can lead to things like Hashimoto's and rheumatoid arthritis. Now, many of us associate gluten with celiac disease, you know, which is an autoimmune condition that affects the villi of the small intestine. So if you can picture it like in your small intestine, you have these like finger like these long kind of wavy projections. Um, And I think of them like fingers because their job is to grab the nutrients. And so it's like these fingers in your small intestine, like grabbing the nutrients because we absorb 90% of our nutrients in our small intestine. People with celiac disease have like flattened fingers, so to speak. So their fingers are flat in their small intestine. It can't reach out and grab the nutrients. So it leads to malabsorption and therefore malnutrition, which has a detrimental cascading effect on health. Okay. And while celiac disease affects a very small percent of the population, Um, Dr. Davis says that two common intestinal conditions that affect many people are irritable bowel syndrome and acid reflux. And he says those are like celiac light. Um, And so we might call it a a gluten sensitivity, right? Um, But his bottom line is that if you have, you know, IBS or reflux or esophageal issues, get off gluten. You know, I would add, as I always do, if you have anything of anything going on with your health, get off gluten because it damages the gut lining. You will constantly be dealing with leaky gut and inflammation, systemic inflammation, right? And Dr. Davis talks about how wheat is associated with the worsening um, of symptoms of autism, ADHD, and schizophrenia. He goes into detail about joints and skin, and he calls it acne the most common skin manifestation of a reaction to wheat gluten. He explains how wheat is associated with dementia and brain dysfunction, triggering an immune response that uh, infiltrates memory and mind. So, I mean, get off it. (laughs) I mean, there is no need for wheat in the diet, and yet it can do so much harm for you to keep it in the diet. 
you know, he says that the need for quote unquote healthy whole grains is pure fiction. He's like, let me describe a typical person with a wheat deficiency. Like if, if a doctor said, you know, you were going to have a deficiency if you didn't eat wheat, um, Dr. Davis's answer would be like, yeah, that person's going to be slender with a flat tummy, low triglycerides, high HDL, which is, you know, what's considered the good cholesterol, normal blood sugar, normal blood pressure, high energy, good sleep, and normal bowel function. So if that's a wheat deficiency, bring it on, yo. Uh, also, eliminating wheat from your diet can actually enhance uh, vitamin and mineral absorption because because of the leaky gut situation, because your gut is so compromised in its function, when you remove the systemic inflammation, then you'll often um, be able to absorb nutrients better like the B vitamins and zinc and magnesium. Um, those often will increase. So interesting, very important to know. And then one last point that he really wants to hammer home in the book is that um, although gluten-free foods do not trigger an immune or neurological response, you know, of weak gluten, they still trigger that glucose insulin response that causes you to gain weight. Okay, so the flours they use to, to replace wheat, you know, in gluten-free products like tapioca and rice flour and stuff like that, they'll still spike your blood sugar, you know, still create an insulin response, still make you store fat. So it's not just about replacing your Oreos with gluten-free Oreos, right? That's, you know, um, not the end game. I, you know, I tell a lot of people in the beginning, if you're trying to do, trying to do it, you can make these lateral steps, you know, like if you, if you're freaking out that you can't have bread, then make gluten-free bread, buy gluten-free bread, you know, but that is still like overeating any carbohydrate like that is going to um, create weight gain. And so it's really managing that carbohydrate load. So just know that. Okay, the last book is a the, the most recent modern book, I guess you'd say. And it is the complete guide to fasting by Dr. Jason Fung. Um, this one, um, obviously near and dear to my heart since I have feast to fast and it was a great resource for me. And in fact, I have all of my uh, coaches uh, people who want to become Feast to Fast coaches, this is part of the required reading for that. It's just a wonderful resource. Uh, Dr. Fung is a, a Canadian nephrologist, which is, he's a kidney doctor. He's a leading expert on intermittent fasting, low carb, high fat, and especially treating people with type 2 diabetes. Um, and in fact, you know, he was seeing so many patients with kidney problems as a side effect of type 2 diabetes. It's really how he got into this. So I want to just share kind of the way he phrases things and explains things in the book. And so um, one thing is that uh, he has a chapter on why fasting works for type 2 diabetes. And I get that question a lot when people are asking about Feast of Fast, if it's appropriate. And, you know, we have to remember that type 2 diabetes is a disease of insulin resistance. Okay, and so um, insulin resistance is, you know, really eating, overeating too much carbs. That's a lot of it, right? And so, um, and so what happens is what he says is that, you know, obviously when the insulin resistance develops, the normal level of insulin is not able to move glucose or sugar into your cells. So that's insulin's job. It's like an escort. It's supposed to, you know, when you eat carbohydrates, they turn to blood sugar, insulin shows up to like escort it into all the different cells. And but if it can't do that, if your cells are resistant to insulin, and the sugar can't get into the cells, there's like a buildup of the circulating blood sugar, and your body tries to pump out more insulin to try to get into the cell. So um, you know, Dr. Fung explains that there are only two methods of getting toxic glucose overload out of the body. Um, one is to stop putting it in, Stop putting in so much glucose, so much foods that turn to sugar in the body. And you can do that with a low carb diet. And people have actually reversed their type 2 diabetes simply by changing their diet. I mean, it happens. It is amazing. The second thing that you have to do, he says, is you know, got to burn off the excess glucose. And fasting, that's where fasting comes in, is such an efficient way to do that. Um, but he does warn that. If you're on medication for type 2 diabetes, you've got to keep your doctor informed 
because if you're lowering your carbs and you're fasting, it will lower your blood sugar, which your medicine is already trying to do. And so you might get into a situation of too low of blood sugar. Um, if you're feeling shaky, sweaty, nauseous, those are all signs of low blood sugar. What can also happen um, is that when you lower insulin, your body will get rid of excess salt and water because insulin is well known to cause salt and water retention in the body. And this is why low carb diets, you know, often release that water weight, and it can also lead to lower blood pressure. So you definitely need to talk to your doctor, you know, if you're on blood pressure medication, that kind of thing, because it might get, you know, you might get too low. Um, and it's one thing I, you know, tell my feast of fasters is like in that first week, especially if you've been eating way too many carbs, and then we, we kind of bring that into this nice range, this kind of nice doable range. And the first thing to go is the water weight. It's what your body releases. And so you might see like a, you know, some significant weight loss that first week. And that is wonderful. And don't poo poo it just because it's water weight. You know, I remind them that is the first step releasing this inflammation, this water, all this stuff you've been holding on to. And that's the first step. It's the first positive move to, um, to actually getting to then burn the fat to release more weight. Okay, so that's some good stuff right there. And then I love the way that he uses a great analogy in the book, um, when it comes to explaining how to burn fat. Okay. And so he, um, he uses this analogy of a the fridge and the freezer. So he says two things must happen in order to burn fat. Number one, you must must burn through most of your stored sugar, your glycogen. And number two, insulin levels must drop low enough to release the fat stores. Okay. And so he compares glycogen, which is your, the sugar that's stored in your body is like the refrigerator. And so if the body, if the body needs um, some quick food, you're going to go to the refrigerator, right? You're not going to go to the freezer where everything's frozen and hard to get to. And so sugar is for your like quick, easy to access, short term storage, you can, it's easy to, you know, get it out. But storage space is limited, right? We only have so much, so many places in our body to store sugar, it, you know, in our liver, in our muscles, and then um, beyond that, it all turns to fat. So a lot of people think, you know, only fat turns to fat. No, when there's no more room to store the carbs, when the fridge is full, it goes to the freezer, it goes to fat. Okay. And so fat is like your basement freezer. Okay, it's designed for long term storage. And it's difficult to access, but it's got a lot more capacity, you can always buy extra freezers, you can always make more fat, right. So when we buy groceries, we store food in the fridge first. And when, when that's full, we store the excess in the freezer. For the most part, that's how it works. And our bodies kind of do the same, they store food as sugar first. Um, for that easy access energy. And then when that's full, it's stored as fat. And again, the body always wants to use that easy to access food first, you know, the food from the fridge, it wants to burn sugar, because that's the food that's easiest to get to. And so long as long as there's food in the fridge, you know, as long as there's enough sugar, you know, in the body, it doesn't need to retrieve anything from the freezer then need to tap into that fat storage, you don't need to get into the freezer, you got you keep stuff in the fridge. And you know, all the time easy access, there's always sugar to burn. And you got to mostly empty out the fridge before you need to go to the freezer. So people who eat a lot of sugar and carbs are always keeping the fridge full. And your body's not going to go to the freezer for energy. You got to deplete a lot of the fridge, let your body run through most of its sugar storage before the body is ready to burn fat. Now, the other thing you got to think about is how accessible your freezer is. Um, and what the lock system is, you know, insulin is like your lock. If there's a lot of insulin present, because of insulin resistance, because you're eating, you know, eating too many times throughout the day, eating too many carbs, um, or you have insulin resistance, it's like having a lock on your freezer, insulin blocks fat burning. Okay, and it's the lock on the fat stores, your body cannot go to the freezer and use the contents if there's a lock on it, your body cannot burn fat 
from your fat storage, all the fat on your body, if there's a lot of insulin present. So if insulin is low, then your freezer is unlocked and accessible and ready to go. Okay, so I hope that's a good visual and, um, and explains that to you well. Um, you know, there's Dr. Fung goes into a lot of other stuff into the book autophagy, um, which I kind of talked about last week, he goes into extended fasting, it is the complete guide to fasting. So um, it's a good one. And it's a great resource. He also has uh, two other books, one called the obesity code, I have that one, it's a great one too. And one called the diabetes code really great resources. I haven't read, like I said, I haven't read the diabetes code, but a lot of, a lot of these are similar in, in its message, you know, but this one about fasting just goes into the history, the why, the how, and you know, it's just, it's a really good one. So that is it. One, two, three, four, five, pretty much in the order in which, you know, I came upon them in my life. And, um, and, such good information. You know, I think that looking at all those, it's kind of interesting that the first one nourishing traditions is kind of the one that lifted the stigma of carbs, you know, for me and, and, and opened my mind like, okay, this, well, first of all, lifted the stigma of fat. That's the first thing it did. But the second time around, it lifted the stigma of carbs. Isn't that interesting? Again, or, you know, it's like the diets are, the diets out there, it's like taking away major, major macronutrient. It's, you know, it's that manipulation, but you know, really the healthiest approach is to welcome all the macronutrients, you know, into the diet. Don't, don't go too extreme. If you don't have to, there are times when nutritional therapy is necessary. I hope you're getting a better idea of what nutritional therapy is by the way, you know, the way I explained it today. Um, but that book was really important for me for that. And then, but you know, some of these other books like the wheat belly and the specific carbohydrate diet, and then the complete guide to fasting, you know, it's really about how carbs can be problematic and how we have to really, um, we have to really watch those, but also, you know, it's, it's not going to be the same for every person, but that carbs are really problematic for so many people. I think people need to understand that. I think I read that Dr. Um, oh gosh, Dr. Hyman, um, is that his name? Green brain. I think I saw a meme that said that he wrote that said, uh, 75% people, let's see, 75% of people are carbohydrate intolerant. And so whether that is very obvious to you in the way that you feel in your gut, like digestive issues, or if you, you know, are having um, any of these other issues, you know, joint pain or migraines or skin, like all the things I'm always saying, you know, first, it, you know, I'm always like, okay, we'll take out the gluten, take out the wheat. But it could be that the gut is so compromised, and you've had a leaky gut and things are leaking into the system that, you know, on one hand, we just we have things that are set, setting it off systemically, um, the alarm bells are going off in the immune system, or the bacteria in your large intestine are, you know, it's created this bacterial imbalance there. And so it, you know, but it all starts right there in the gut. And that is why I'm always impressing upon you that um, we've got to pay attention to that. You know, I think people take, want to take a big yawner when we're like, oh, talk about gut health and digestibility and all that stuff. But that's why it's so important for you to, to understand it. All right, my friends, I hope this was helpful. I'm going to put all this in the show notes if you want to go back and, and look at any of this stuff. Um, and as always, you know, feel free to ask me questions. Um, and I'm just, as always, so grateful that you're here and that you're listening. I hope you have a healthy and blessed week, and I will talk to you soon. Remember that my mom is an awesome nutritionist, but she's not a doctor. The information in this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Always talk to your doctor before making changes to your nutrition or exercise program. Thanks for listening. Have a healthy and blessed week.